You know, sometimes when you're podcasting in your best friend's backyard, a beverage is a nice thing to have. So I've been told. It's the truth. Hi, I'm George Tekmanchub here with Jay Bars. Howdy. The Olympic gold medalist of 1988. Feels just like last week. <laughs> it does. And uh, we're here at Casa de Bars to talk about archery stuff and other things. You have to get the full name. It's Casa de Bars Ski Chalet and Home for Wayward Archers. That's right. Casa de Bars Ski Chalet and Home for Wayward Archers here in beautiful view Draper, of, the, Utah. of the Wasatch Mountain Range in the backyard here. And uh, a frequent hangout for wayward archers, to be sure. So, Jay, I want to thank you for... Uh, taking the time to join us today. You know, one of the things we talked about when we said, hey, you know what, we need to do a podcast again, was that we often have long conversations about our sport. And then we go, dang, wish we recorded that. And of course, that's a dynamic that just comes from, you know, years of talking about stuff and hanging together. But uh, And we have solved most of the world's problems here in my backyard. Very many of them, anyway. I, I can guarantee you that if only the things that we had decided had come to pass, we would not be in the middle of a pandemic right now. <laughs> yes. We'd be, we'd be well into the World Cup season and everything would be going hunky and dory at the same time. But, uh, but we forgot to record that stuff, so it's lost. Our fault. Anyway. These days, besides doing a little bit of shooting here and there, you're coaching. Some. So I wanted to see if I could get a feel for our listeners of Jay Barr's coaching philosophy. Just to start. Now, let me preface this. We're both a product of a very accomplished and illustrious coach. You and I both have had the privilege and good fortune to be able to work with Dick Tone. Yes, indeed. So I don't imagine that you are straying too far from, uh, shall we say, paying it forward. Well, absolutely. I mean, his philosophy from the very beginning made sense to me, and it was keep it as simple as possible, let the body work the way the body's supposed to work, and shoot the arrow. It ain't that hard. It's a simple sport. You pull the bow, <laughs> you let the arrow go. You point the bow, you let the arrow go. Oh, that's what I missed. Yeah. That's why. You got to point the bow. All this time. In the direction of the target, usually. After all these years, I finally had the revelation of pointing the bow. Yeah. No, but all joking aside, you know, there's lots of different ways to coach, but there's also, besides the form stuff, the biggest part is the mental game. So what do you try to impart to your students when you talk about the mental game? That's a tough question because it depends on where they are in the arc of their career of shooting. You know, a more accomplished archer, it's going to be a lot different than a beginner. You know, when you're a beginner, the, the mental side of things is more just learning how to do it step by step. Because at some point you have to kind of be one, two, three, four. Yeah. Um, but then when you get to a certain level, then it has to become, well, at the top level, it's way more art than science. And if it's not, those guys and girls will not make it to the top. It has to be more of an art form. Um, and that's when the mental side takes a lot more precedent than the physical. You already know how to do it. So it's a really complicated question to say, what is your mental philosophy? Because um, it just depends on where that archer is. So let's take the average student that you have that's starting out. 
Okay. Once you get past the rote elements so that they no longer have to think about each and every step. So they're, shall we say, um, consciously incompetent, which is not meant as an insult, but is one of the steps, steps. of, you know, achievement. Right. So uh, when do you start to focus them on thinking about the mental side? So when they get to where they're fairly consistent, their form looks fairly consistent. I mean, you're always working on something. I mean, I worked on stuff all the time. Dick was constantly, you know, not necessarily tweaking stuff, but moving stuff back to where it should have been because everyone has tendencies to get away from how they should be doing it. Um, so with an archer that's, you know, past beginner and kind of into the intermediate side of things, it's more start talking about focus, uh, rhythm, timing, and, you know, I should have that tattooed somewhere on my body because that's what I heard from Dick forever was focus, rhythm, and timing. Focus, Same here. rhythm, and timing. And it's right. If you look at the top people, the ones that are winning, they have the best rhythm and timing on the field. They always do. It's just they're like a machine. It's just one after the other, and the rhythm and timing is there. So that's, you know, kind of part of it is getting that rhythm and timing, getting them focused on that. But the focus of staying focused at the target through the shot, not coming out of it early, trying to see where it went, and then starting to set some goals. I mean, you almost can't do that too early. Um, so once they're kind of through the, this is what a bow is, and this is what an arrow is, and this is how the knot goes on the string, you know, if they're going to be competitive and want to shoot in tournaments, you can start working on mental goals, scores they want to shoot, number of arrows they want to shoot, things in their form they want to accomplish, those type of things. From the standpoint of um, competition versus practice, one of the things that I hear from guys like Brady is every shot needs to be the same. Doesn't matter if you're shooting blank bail. Doesn't matter if you're shooting in a gold medal final. Mentally, you want to go into that with the shot being the same shot, no matter what. Is that something you try to impart to your students as well? Well, yeah, that's definitely the goal. I mean, one of the one of the things I tell my students all the time is, if you can swim in five feet of water, you can swim in a hundred feet of water. Strokes the same. So if you can shoot an arrow at a blank bale at five meters, you can shoot an arrow at a target at seventy meters. It's the same shot. Nothing's changed. Okay, your body angle changed a little bit, but truly nothing's changed. It's the same shot. So, yes. That's what you want. Now, you have to understand that in a tournament, it's never going to feel like practice. And you have to be okay with that, and you have to learn that. And that's part of that mental thing of being okay with, I got butterflies, or my sight seems to be moving more. You have to learn that that's not really true. It's just because you're in a tournament, you got some adrenaline going, you got some cortisol going through your, and that's what you think is happening, but that's truly not what happens. And the real thing to do here is to accept it and let it happen and continue on past it. Absolutely. Dick told me, he goes, if you don't have butterflies, then you probably don't care. He goes, having butterflies is fine. You just got to get them to all fly in formation. <laughs> that's <laughs> that's kind of the key. So I was nervous Anytime I shot for a tournament, a score, if you and I were shooting for a beer, I would have a little bit of, uh, you know, that feeling in my stomach. And it was, 
The thing about being nervous or being excited, it's exactly the same physiologically. It's how you interpret it. So the way I explain that to people is when you're a kid and you wake up on Christmas morning, you're excited. When you're a kid and you get called to the principal's office, you're nervous. But physiologically, what happens to your body is exactly the same. Your body produces adrenaline and cortisol. How your mind interprets it is what the difference is. So I basically told myself that when I got those butterflies at a tournament, that was a good thing. That meant I was ready to shoot. And I shot all of my best scores in tournaments, not in practice. And most top archers were that way. Daryl Pace was that way. Rick McKinney was that way. You know, I'm sure Eliason was that way, the guys back in my day, because the tournament mattered. Practice, as much as you try to make it matter and you want to try to put that kind of pressure on yourself, at the end of the day, you really know it doesn't. But it's always good to do that. Anytime you can in practice put the pressure on yourself, it always helps. Try to create that perfect shot in your mind with that same feeling of pressure. And then that's part of the visualization process. Yeah, and I, I kind of have a, a version to the perfect shot because what I found <clears throat> in my career is it doesn't have to be perfect to be a 10. <laughs> I shot a lot of good arrows that were 10s, and I shot a lot of perfect arrows that were 9s. So I didn't worry about perfect as much as I worried about good and consistent. If I was consistent, that was going to make the difference. And the key to consistency is focus, focus rhythm, rhythm timing. timing. Absolutely. I Back in the day when we shot FIDAs and it was 144 arrows and you kept track of 10s and all that stuff, I won a lot of double FIDAs and was third or fourth in 10 count. But I had a lot of nines. So other guys were having sixes and fives and more 10s. I didn't have as many 10s, but I didn't have as many sixes and fives. Right. It's like Sebastian Flute back in 92. He nined them to death. You know, that consistency doesn't have to be perfect, like you said, as long as you're consistent. If you can hold gold, even today, to a degree, and it's gotten tougher. Oh, absolutely. But Scores if you can... ridiculous. Well, yeah. By our <laughs> standards back in our day, I think, yeah. I find it hard to wrap my mind around, you know, 350-something on a regular basis at 70 meters, because it's just not something that I've done, right? I know you've done it a couple times, but it, most people haven't, and therefore it becomes more of a daunting thing. How do you deal with something like that? What do you tell your students to do? Well, I mean, you have to just take it one step at a time. And I know that sounds very trite, but it's the truth. You know, the old saying about how do you eat an elephant? It's one bite at a time. It's true. There's a reason those statements and those sayings are out there because they're true. So, yes, if you look at, you know, I shoot 300 at 70 meters for 36 arrows, and the guys that are winning it shoot 350 I'll never get there. Well, yeah, you're right. You're not going to jump 50 points. Because you're focused on 50 points instead of focusing on focus, rhythm, rhythm and timing, and timing but also, which gets you the extra score. Yeah, and part of that, though, is setting a goal of if you're a 300 shooter, could you see yourself shooting a 315? So you want to set a goal that's far enough out there that it's a stretch, but not so far out there that your mind goes, you're insane. And that's kind of a balancing act. And what I would do is I would go take my... Again, it was easier with the FIDA because we shot multiple distances. But I would take what was my best distance score 
at 90, 70, 50, and 30. And I would combine them and say, so what feta would that be? And that would be a 13, 50, whatever. Well, so that's what I'm capable of if I can string those all together. So if you can shoot a 57 at 70 meters once, if you string six of those together, you've got a real score now. And so if you're capable of doing it once, you need to look at it from the positive side of, I can do this because I've proven I can do it, not I got lucky and I did it one time. And that's the problem is most people look at it like, oh, well, I just got lucky. And there's a subconscious shift there that needs to come into play because you've got yourself a situation where you need to believe subconsciously that, yes, this is me. I shoot these scores. And as a result, we have the opportunity to get that number because I believe I can shoot that number. I can do it if I'm on that day, if I'm in the zone, if I'm, you know, I got enough sleep and I ate the right thing that morning, I, I can shoot that score. Yeah. And like I said, I would always try to do things to give myself motivation, but take the pressure off myself. Example. Um, so for a score, so if I had shot 59 at 70 meters one time, my mind's not going to believe I can do that every time. But I know I can do it, so I'm capable of it. So why not say, all right, if I average 300, but I've shot a 59 before, why not split the difference and go, I can shoot 54 every time. Now you're looking at a 324. And your comfort zone is a little bit padded. Yes, but you're also not hanging yourself out there so far that your subconscious is never going to buy it. And that's part of the whole positive affirmations and you know, getting your subconscious to believe you're better than you actually are because it controls everything you do high and low. So if you've ever gone to a tournament and you start out and you're shooting great, you've shot like three of the best ends you've ever shot, and something in your mind goes, ruh row. <laughs> I'm really not this good because you're uncomfortable because you've never shot three 57s in a row. And then you shoot 45, 48, 47, and you're right back to your average of whatever it is. You dragged yourself back down to your Correct. comfort zone. Because that's where your subconscious is comfortable. But if you start out with 45, 47, 45, then you shoot 57, 56, 54, and you're right back at your average. That's how your subconscious works. So with positive affirmations and some you know, mental training, you can raise your subconscious expectations before you physically get there. And it will drag you to that spot because it doesn't like thinking you're operating outside of that comfort zone. What I find interesting, having interviewed uh, Brady this past week. Who? The little guy that lives down in Arizona. Oh, you might have heard of him. Yeah, that guy. Yeah, the one that looks like Leonardo DiCaprio. Yeah, he's good. He is okay. He does all right. First thing out of his mouth when I asked him, so what's your mental system? He's like, I use Lanny Basham's mental management program which is essentially similar to what you're talking about. It's the mental management system of positive affirmation, the mental triad, the, the whole program that's used for 40 years now, because it started in 76, Six. right? Yeah, that's when he won so, his medal, I believe. So, yeah, 40, 44 years. It works. And it works in spite of not being the latest thing, you know, because... <laughs> The mind only works a certain way. There's, there's nothing new. <laughs> there's new packages. Right? There's new hooks. There's new 
systems that are really not new. So You know, the fishermen of the world could probably attest to this just as well as the archers of the world. Because every 20 years or so, something like a dar devil comes back out again. Well, yeah, but, you know, it. there's hundreds of different mental systems out there. You just need to find one that makes sense to you and that you can stick with. That you can fit into your lifestyle. Correct. And and I can tell you for a fact they work. And what I chose was the positive affirmations. And it was because we had been at national team camps. This was about 1985. So I'd been to, I don't think I've been on the national team since 83 or 84. So I'd been to several of the camps. This was, I think, 1985. So it's the top 10 men in the U.S. for recurve, and the top 10 women at that time was the was the U.S. team. Uh, USAT, they called it. And Rick McKinney. Who? Yeah. <laughs> Rick McKinney made a statement, and Daryl Pace is sitting in the room. Who? Two-time <laughs> Olympic gold medalist, and Ed Eliason. And, Who? Yeah. 72 Olympian. Yeah. And uh, he said, you know, every year we bring you all to camp, and we teach you how to eat, and we teach you how to shoot, and we teach you how to do mental training. And every year, y'all always go home and just go back to doing what you've always done. He goes, and I'm not worried about any of y'all ever beating me. And I was like, bold statement, considering who's sitting in this room. Mm-hmm. Now, then I thought, well, in 1983, he won the world championships. In 1984. He was a silver medalist at the Olympics, and in 1985, he won the world championships. Okay, so other than the silver medal at the Olympics, he's got a pretty good track record going. I thought, all right, maybe I should pay attention. He goes, mental training is the difference, and none of y'all do it. I do it. I'm not worried about y'all ever beating me. So my attitude was, all right, I'm going to do this stupid mental training. It's not going to work. And then I can go back to just shooting arrows, and you'll get off my back. That was literally my mindset when I decided that. So they had two or three different mental programs that they taught us, and one of them was positive affirmations. So you write down on a three-by-five card things like, I enjoy and am comfortable shooting strong, smooth shots in the wind. I enjoy and am comfortable shooting scores of 340 at 70 meters. And by the way, you're not printing these out. You're actually writing these in your handwriting and putting them on a three-by-five card. Correct. Much more powerful. Uh, You don't type them. You don't let somebody else write them for you. Use your own handwriting. And then you read them six or eight, ten times a day. And you have six or eight cards. You put them around the house, maybe, where you're going to see them, on the refrigerator, on the bathroom mirror, places like that. You can. You need to carry them with you. So when you're sitting in traffic or you're at the grocery store, you can read them. Um, And then, yes, you can. I had some on my mirror, but I also had one in my pocket that was the same. Um, And you start reading these things. And after you read it, the whole idea is you have to read it word for word because after a while you'll have it memorized and you can just hold the card up to your head and, you know, recite what it says on the card. Instead, you read it word for word and then you visualize what's on that card. So I enjoy them comfortable shooting strong, smooth shots in the wind. And I would see and feel myself execute a really good shot in the wind. Sometimes I'd watch it hit the tin ring. Sometimes I just was happy with I executed the shot and I'd go to the next card. And I could go through eight cards and... I don't know, 15, 30 seconds at the most. And I could visualize something on every card. I enjoyed them comfortable shooting scores of 340 at 70 meters. And I'd see a scorecard that added up to 340. That kind of stuff. Um, 
And so I, I started doing that because I could do that. I tried the, the uh, what was the one I tried? Oh, the self-hypnosis, and I just got a really good nap. Um, I tried something else, couldn't stay focused that long. So this was something I could do just whenever I had time. So sitting at a stoplight, read a couple of the cards. Standing in line at the grocery store, read a couple cards. Um, and what I noticed after about six months was nothing. Until I looked back at where I had been six months ago. And now I'm shooting much higher scores. I'm shooting more arrows every day. I'm, I'm winning tournaments. And the diff- I became the fourth guy in the U.S. to ever shoot a 1,300. And the only difference was those cards. And it's because it raised that subconscious comfort zone to a level that it drug me physically to. Versus just pounding your head against the wall until you physically get to that level. And then you go, oh, okay, that's how good I am. When you convince your subconscious you're already that good, then it makes you do whatever it takes to get to that level. So suddenly I was, had this burning desire to go out and shoot three or 400 arrows a day. Didn't know why, I just needed to go do that. So that's what worked for me, and that's the program I liked. But, again, there's hundreds of programs out there. So find one that makes sense and do it. Did you ever work with any sports psychologists from the standpoint of getting some guidance as to which of these things would work the best, or did you just naturally gravitate toward a specific one? Uh, Dick Tone was my sports psychologist. (laughs) Um, So, no, I did not. Back then, it was... There wasn't a lot of them around. I mean, we worked with the guys at ASU a little bit, but they were mainly doing experiments on us to get their PhDs, um, not really giving us a whole lot of input. So my name is on the thesis of about four or five different PhD students because they used the archery team as guinea pigs for their experiments. But rather infamously, none of that stuff actually got packed with the shooters at the time. Correct. Um, But so it's not a problem, but the issue I have with some sports psychologists is if you're trying to tell me what I, what I'm feeling on the line at the Olympic games for the gold medal and you've never done it, then shut up because you have no idea what I'm thinking or feeling. You think you do. And the textbooks tell you what you think I should be doing, but you don't know. However, what you can do for me is give me a toolbox of things I can use depending on how I'm thinking and feeling at the time, because it's never always the same. So just like you have a backup bow and a backup finger tab, and if you don't get one, um, you should have a backup mental program because it's not always going to, the same thing is not always going to work. Most of the time I didn't watch the leaderboard. At the end of the tournament, I'd kind of be like, do I get a trophy or not? Other times if I wasn't focused or I wasn't, I was struggling or whatever, I'd start watching the leaderboard. Okay, where am I? I'm in fifth. All right, who's in fourth? I got to catch that guy. And then I'd start watching the leaderboard, and that would help me. So it didn't always, it didn't always work the same every time. Um, so you need to have backup mental programs, and that's where a sports psychologist can be a huge help. And they can definitely give you insights into why you think certain ways, um, how you think certain things, how th- certain things affect what you think. That they can definitely do. Um, but that's the thing I liked about Dick as my coach was he had been to a world championship. He was a professional archer. He had done time in Vietnam. He had been under pressure. So he knew exactly what I was thinking and feeling because he had been there. Um, and so I had a lot more confidence in that versus someone who learned it in a textbook. Now, again, there's a great place for those people, and that is to give me the toolbox. The toolbox. 
and then let me figure out which one of those tools is going to work on this day. Let me shift gears on you here. Um, you know, with these podcasts, we don't really discuss what we're going to talk about in advance. So I'm going to throw something at you and you can throw it back at me if you want or think about it. But I was on a roll. You were on a roll and we'll get back to some of that. But um, in these times that are unprecedented, things that you and I have never seen in our archery careers before, the situation is what it is. Nobody's able to travel. Nobody's able to really get out to tournaments. U.S. Nationals just took place, uh, somewhat reduced field because of the current pandemic situation. And there's a lot of people, people like Brady and people like Takahara Furukawa and people like Ojin Hyuk, who basically had a one-year holding pattern as they were coming into land in Tokyo. What we can do is not relate directly to it, but we can speculate on what maybe we should do in such a situation. You know, I mean, you know, two-time Olympian yourself, there's a cycle to these things, right? You, you have a preparation time frame, and then boom, suddenly everybody got reset. Brady, for example, was basically shooting the best he's ever shot in his life. He's ready to go. And this thing has come. And now he's got a reset. What would your advice be for some of these Olympians trying to reset their lives and their practice routine for Tokyo? So I guess the first thing I would say is it's okay to be pissed off about this because it sucks. And my heart goes out to all the athletes, whether it's football that got canceled, baseball, I mean, the Olympics, it's ridiculous. Um, and my heart absolutely goes out to you. And it's okay to be pissed off about it. Um, most people won't remember back in 1980 when President Carter decided to boycott the Olympics in Russia. Um, and, you know, people didn't get to go to the Olympic Games uh, from the United States and a lot of Canada and a lot of, you know, a lot of our allies didn't go to the Olympics. And a lot of people never got back to it. So it's okay to be mad. So don't, don't beat yourself up. Be mad. It's kind of like grieving if when somebody dies. you got to go through that whole process of, you know, the anger and the acceptance and denial and blah, 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 blah. That's all cool. Um, but at the end of the day, you have to be able to think about control what you can control. And you can't control this. So take control of what you can control, which is your training, your mental game, all of that stuff. And maybe now's the time to kind of lay off for a little bit. Take a little bit of a break. Don't quit shooting, but, you know, take a break. Relax. You can't go to a lot of tournaments. Let your mind reset. Kind of take that mental thing of, all right, that's over. Now I have to prepare for this. And then refocus yourself on that tournament that's coming up in a year in Tokyo. Happens to be the Olympic Games. But it's a tournament. So... Take the time, let yourself decompress, and then refocus and put yourself a, a plan together so then you're shooting your best again at that time. And that's all you can do is control what you can control. Yeah, which is good advice for not just for Olympians trying to get back into shape for Tokyo 2021, but really for everybody affected by something like this. 
Well, yeah. I mean, the industry I'm in, which is the pharmaceutical business, pretty much every year they have some kind of massive reorganization and people lose their jobs. So that's just the world I live in with the job I have. And some people get completely wrapped around the axle about it and they're constantly trying to figure out what the company's going to do and when should I jump to a new company or interview for your new job. I can't control any of that. So I do my job. I do the job as best as I can do it. And if one day I get a call that says, you no longer have one, then I'll go out and find another job. I'm going to shift gears on you again and bring it back to the track that we were on earlier. Equipment is something that um, gets a lot of attention. You know, shooters seem to spend a lot of time and effort and money on, on gear, trying to get their gear dialed in, trying to get the latest gear, trying to get something that will get them extra points. Golfers are like this, too. And by the way, um, as golfers go, you play a pretty mean golf game yourself. But uh, put it in perspective here. What, was 200 par, 400 par? What was it? I, I have shot under par once in my life. Yeah. Fairly recently. Uh-huh. I was very happy about that. Exactly. I'm a, I'm a four handicapper, so I'm nowhere near good, but I'm better than average. You know, anytime somebody shoots under <laughs> par, nothing to, nothing to sneeze at. But you didn't do it because you bought a new driver. No. No, I've, I was never an equipment guy. And, of course, back... Back in my day in the 1900s, um, there was only... When we had hair. Correct. On our head, not on my face. Um, you know, Hoyt had a bow. That was the GM. So I was... And even then, there was guys that were constantly tinkering with equipment and messing with stuff and changing stuff. And that just wasn't me. I and, knew... And, and just so people understand, there were basically three competitive bows back then. There was the Hoyt, there was the Yamaha, and then you could probably plug in a couple of little boutique brands here and there. Nishizawa, Nishizawa Greenhorn. Yeah, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you went to the Olympic Games, basically half the field Hoyt was shooting and Hoyt and half the field was shooting Yamaha yeah. with a few others sprinkled in. Correct. So choices were a lot more limited back then because each of those companies had a bow. Right. Yes. But... There was still guys that got wrapped around the axle about equipment. And that was just never my thing because I knew that bow would shoot better than I could ever shoot it. Whether it was tuned or untuned. The only reason I ever tuned a bow was so I could make the biggest mistake and pay the smallest penalty. That was the only reason I tuned a bow. If I could shoot every shot exactly the same, I wouldn't even bother to tune a bow. It wouldn't matter. Correct. You could just adjust your sight and life would be good. So I find it humorous that people get so wrapped around the axle about equipment especially the top guys because those are the people that should understand it's not the bow it's the archer now having said that it depends on where you are in your career you know and if you're shooting a one piece wood bow then yes the modern bow is going to make a huge difference um and arrows make a huge difference i think that's the biggest advance we've seen since when I shot was the X-10 over the ACE. Huge difference. Um, and yes, equipment matters, and yes, you should have it tuned, and yes, you should have confidence in it, but once you do, stop changing stuff. Right. Um, you're changing more than the gear is anyway. Absolutely, because you know, you're a human being. Day to day. Yes. Or hour to hour. <laughs> so, I mean, that would be my advice is 
once you get it set up, once you get it tuned, once you get something that's working, <clears throat> stick with that and learn how to shoot it. And unless you change something major in your form or how you shoot, you change your draw length, you change the bow poundage, whatever, then go back and retune it all and make sure it's there. But after that, it's how you shoot it, not what it is. Now, I know the bow manufacturers probably going to be thrilled about that because that's how they sell new bows. But it's the shot done by the person, not the equipment that it's being shot out of. And if you don't believe that, here's a guy that we spoke to who had a very similar thing to say. One of my big equipment philosophies is I'll never shoot any products just for the money. Like, every product that I shoot, I believe that it's going to help me win. Every product you shoot, um, you believe it's going to help you win. You never just shoot a product for the money. Exactly. Um, because that costs you in the end. And I've seen, I've seen a lot of archers that got paid to shoot something, and they quit winning. And they still kept promoting something that they weren't winning with just because they got the paycheck. And your, um, your philosophy is in the long run, you can never make enough money to make up for not winning. Exactly. <laughs> exactly, because the more you win at some point in time is when you get a big contract that overtakes any little ones you'll get for a small product. So it's not worth, compromising, it's not worth compromising performance just to get paid to shoot something. Exactly. And then really, I'm actually kind of, I would say, loose with my equipment. Like, I, I don't have to have things perfect. Like, there's a lot of times that I shoot, like, a string that's probably too old or, um, you know, I don't change things out. Like, I shot the same plunger. I think this year is the first time I changed my plunger since I started shooting a reacher. Um, and that's a, is that know, a biter plunger that you shoot? Yeah, that's a biter plunger. And then, I mean, I changed tips. Like, I shoot the AAE tip because it doesn't wear the arrows. But um, as far as springs and internals, it was the first thing, and it was bent. And every time I put it on a bow, like, I had to figure out, like, I had to tighten it extra because the barrel was bent and stuff, but it, it still performed. Um, uh, when I'm tuning, I don't, I don't, I don't tune every bow exactly the same way. I get it in the, in the same general area. And if it shoots good, I leave it. Like, as long as the bow shoots good and the arrows fly decent, and I don't care about arrow flight, really. I mean, as long if it has a couple of kicks in it, I'm okay as long as it groups and it continues to group in the wind. And, con um, and consistent from shot to shot, I presume. Yeah, like, I, I don't really care. Uh, how the bow is tuned. There's a story. <clears throat> there's a little story about your Vegas 900, where you were saying you could almost read the label on the arrow because it was coming out so sideways, but it was going right in the middle, so you didn't care. Exactly. I mean, the the arrows that I shot in Vegas this year were like a foot and a half stiff. So really, not tuned well. No, and they just had one one initial big kick. And, but the arrow flew perfectly straight after about 10 yards. And so, so it didn't matter. Shot good there, so and it didn't matter. Like, and you were shooting perfect one, shots. Yeah. You shoot one 
you know, it has one big kick. You have a five-inch feather that straightens it out at times, so it hits the fan every place. And, and, you know, that's what shot. Like, I, I kind of got it to where it just, it, that bow, like, I put it together and I just got the, the bear shaft the same height as my flat shafts and then just kind of started shooting it and played with the plunger a little bit so I felt like it was in the most forgiving place and then I started trusting it and shooting in it and then it never missed. Well, you never missed anyway. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, so keep it simple. Trust your shot. Don't spend too much time on tuning because that takes away from what you're really there for. Do you agree with those statements? Um, yeah, like you have to have a bow that's forgiving to you. So you have to spend a little bit of time on tuning. But the human body changes so much every day that if you go and check your bear shaft every single day, you're just going to be chasing your own tail because it's going to be slightly different. You change so more than the bow does. Yes. The 100%. human body changes more. Yes. So what you want is a forgiving bow. Not necessarily a perfect tune, but one that works best with you and your variables as a human being. Yeah, pretty much. Do you worry much about things like like uh, limb alignment? Does that matter a lot to you? Oh uh, yes, yes, I do. I do when I set up the bow. I align, so I I put a stabilizer in the stabilizer hole with no V bars or no anything on it, just straight to the stabilizer hole. Um, with a stabilizer that I know is straight and it's real simple like when you're screwing it in if it doesn't wobble then it's probably pretty straight and then I put the string in the center of the stabilizer and then align both limbs to line up with the center of the stabilizer what about the limb tips do you worry about whether those are perfectly straight never even look at them I sure saw a lot of agreement from you when we were listening to that Mostly agreement, absolutely. I mean, the one thing he said that is 100% I agree with is you have to trust your equipment. So do whatever it is to get to where you trust it. I don't care if my arrows are going in knock first. If they're grouping, that's all I care about. I can refletch every end if I have to. But get a bow that's going to group, it's going to group for you, and it's going to be as forgiving as you can get it for you. 100% agree with that. The one thing I don't agree with is I don't care where my stabilizer is pointed. He, he eventually got there to where once he puts the V-bar and extension on it, the stabilizer's off, whatever. I agree with that. I was always more concerned with the limb tips, not the limb alignment. Of course, back in my day, in the 1900s, there was no limb adjustment side to side. So Well, we'd cut of, up soda cans and stuff, but yeah. I never did. No, you didn't, but never. a lot of people did. And again, I think it's pointless. I don't care how far out my string was if I was lining it up down the back of the bow with biter blocks on the limbs. Whatever it was out, I would just adjust, you know, basically split the difference on the biter blocks and then put my arrow just slightly outside the string. I didn't care where the stabilizer was. That didn't mean anything to me because that's, if you didn't drill the hole right in the riser, it would be different. If the stabilizer face wasn't completely flat, it would be different. So I didn't worry about that. What I did worry about, because we couldn't adjust the side to side, was did the limb tip, was that straight? 
So if the limb tip was straight, if I looked at it and superimposed it on the front of the limb and it's too complicated to explain how I did it, but if I did that and the limb tips were straight, I didn't care how crooked the alignment from the back was. The point is, both of you, both you and Brady, are looking for a baseline. Correct. His baseline's different than your baseline because he doesn't look at the limb tips. Correct. You, you used to look at the limb tips, but you didn't look at the stabilizer. Correct. But you both looked at something as yes. a baseline. Yes. And if the limb tips for me were straight, the rest of it didn't matter. Those bows always shot for me. But effectively, it's the same philosophy because whether you're using the middle of the bow as a baseline or you're using the limb tips alignment as a baseline, doesn't really matter because you have a consistent starting point. Yes. And the whole point is it doesn't have to be perfect for the love of God, people. It doesn't have to be perfect. I looked at some of the bows that Daryl, well, the, the bow Daryl Pace set the world record with, um, which it's a fetus, so y'all go look it up. But he shot a 1341. With at a, a time when a 1300 was pretty rough sledding. Yes. There was only like eight guys in the world that shot 1300. He shot a 1341. With aluminum arrows. With aluminum arrows, a Kevlar string, a Hoyt TD2. And a brand new sight from Shiboya that he'd gotten the same day. And limbs that were so messed up because they were experimental limbs that Earl had put together that you could physically see how crooked the bow was when you walk past it. And he shot a 1341. And then to Brady's point about his plunger, about a month later, he and Rick were at a tournament and Rick was taking his plunger apart and cleaning it out and taking a Q-tip and everything. And Daryl looked at him and goes, what are you doing? Oh, well, I'm cleaning my plunger to make sure it's right. And Daryl goes, well, maybe I should try that. Now, this was the same plunger he had just shot 1341 with. At the time, the world record was like a 1318. And he shot a 1341 with aluminum arrows. Try it sometime. Takes his plunger apart and dumps rusty water out of it. That's the other thing we didn't mention is that 1341 was shot in the rain. No, no, it wasn't raining. It was was overcast. It was was overcast. It wasn't raining. All right, strike that. It was raining from other tournaments, but literally dumps rusty water out of it. And Rick McKinney was appalled and goes, huh, and then put it back together and went out and won that tournament too. So Daryl did. Daryl did. So, yes, your equipment is important in that you should trust it and you should have it set up to the best that you can set it up and that it's the most forgiving for you. But it doesn't have to be perfect because you are not perfect. It's just got to be good. And you have to have a baseline to start with what you think is right. Set it up. Get it tuned for what you think is right. And then go shoot it. And trust it. And he's 100% right. You have to trust it. So not to beat this uh, well-ridden horse too much, but I think it'd be fair to say that an awful lot of people who aspire to doing great things in our sport burn up a lot of time and effort on that particular aspect of trying to chase perfection on the equipment side. Without a doubt. And it's like the mental training. So everybody's... They try to control what they think they can control. So if my equipment's perfect, then I'm going to shoot better. That's not the case. If you shoot better, you're going to shoot better. Work on you. I promise you, I could hand Brady a bow that was not tuned. 
I could probably hand him a left-handed bow, and he could beat most of the people in the world because he knows how to shoot a bow and arrow. It's not the equipment. And I know the manufacturers don't want to hear that. Does equipment give you an advantage? Absolutely. Certain equipment is an advantage. X10s are an advantage over aluminum. X10s are an advantage over carbon, uh, ACEs. There's things that are advantages. But once you have all that, chasing a different sight, a different plunger, my stabilizer is not perfectly straight. A stabilizer is a stick that holds a weight away from the bow. That's all it does. Period. So get over all that. It doesn't have to be perfect. To Brady's point, if you put a stabilizer with an extension and a V-bar and the V-bar bolt and the stabilizer, do you know how many tolerances you've just stacked that if any one of those is out, the end of that stabilizer is going to look like it's off to the left or off to the right? Does it matter? No. It does not matter. Get over that. Learn to shoot a bow and arrow set. Be the most consistent archer you can be that will improve your scores. Now, having backups to some of your equipment, that's a wise choice. Well, that's mandatory because if something goes down, you don't have time to take an equipment failure like I could when I shot. If something blew up, I could hold up my hand. The judge would say, take an equipment failure. I could go get it fixed. I'd come back to the line. I could shoot my arrows. You can't do that in a head-to-head. So, yes, your backup bow, and that's the funny thing, is a lot of people's backup bows, if you ask them, when was the last time you shot that? Uh, when I sighted it in. Really? Because if you ever have to shoot it, you might want to have a little more confidence in it. When I got to 88, even though I could take equipment fares and fix my number one bow, I could pick up my number one bow or my number two bow and could not tell the difference. They shot in the same hole. And I had just as much confidence in one as I had in the other. Were they both yellow? They were both yellow and left-handed. I remember at the Atlanta Games, during the gold medal match, Justin Hewish picked up his backup bow accidentally and headed to the line until his coach realized, I think it was Lloyd, realized that, uh, hey, you've got the wrong bow. And he went back and put it back and picked up the, you know, you don't want that variable in the middle of a match if you can help it. Well, exactly. But if something goes down... It's good to know that it'll hit right where you're aiming. That's the same thing like your backup tab. I look at a lot of archers' backup tabs, and they're brand new. Yeah. That is not a backup tab. That is just something to allow you to fling arrows. Magnus Peterson used to keep a Tupperware with five tabs in it, and he'd rotate among them in yeah. a match. He'd, he'd shoot five different tabs over the course of, of a day just to make sure that they were consistent, you know, from the standpoint of the amount of wear on each one. And, and that way he didn't, you know, if he lost a tab, it didn't matter. Yeah. I wasn't quite that fanatical about it, but my backup tab, I shot it enough to know that if I picked it up, put it on the string, and shot it, my sight marks were exactly the same. Nothing changed. Might feel a little different, but didn't care. It went in the same spot as my number one tab, as did my backup bow. And that's the confidence you need to have in your equipment. The difference between the way we shot back in our day, back in the last century, and into the current one, and... What's happening today is scores are higher. Arguably, the pressure is different because you only have 20 seconds to shoot the arrow. Yeah, I ain't buying that. But the fundamentals of the shot really aren't different. No. 20 seconds is all day. Sorry. No, I agree. I used to shoot three arrows in 45, 50 seconds. Well, but you were always the first guy off the line. Correct, but get 
get your job done. You know, my scores went up maybe 100 points in a feed around once I figured that out after you beat me over the head about it <laughs> several times. Focus, rhythm, and timing. Uh-huh. If you can shoot a shot and you can do it in a certain amount of time, you should be able to do it as soon as the whistle blows and not have to wait however long it is until the clock forces you to shoot it. You That's could argue a mental that, problem. You could argue that 20 seconds is an advantage if you have the shot down. Yes and no. To me, to me, having getting to shoot three arrows and I can shoot them so fast that basically I was done and everybody else was looking at what they had to beat. The rhythm part. That was an advantage to me. In 88, my last three arrows, I shot in 31 seconds. I had been speeding up all day and didn't even know it because I was so focused and in the zone in 88. That my, my normal shot was three arrows was 45 to 50 seconds. I shot my last few ends in like 30, 31 seconds. Had no idea I'd sped up that much, but that's how easy it felt to me that day. So I shot my three arrows, walked off the line at 90 meters, and I'm looking at the Cree, and he's only shot one arrow. And I'm thinking, like, what's taking this guy so long? And that's when Dick Tone told me, well, you, you shot your last couple ends in, like, 30 seconds. But he knew exactly what he had to beat because I was done. Yeah. And he didn't. So to me, that was an advantage. So... I think there can be an advantage with the head-to-head if when your clock starts, boom, you shoot an arrow, and now you're looking at the other guy going, what you got? By the way, a little inside baseball for those of you who've seen the 1988 technical film of the Olympic Games. There was a little bit of creative editing there to make it look like you had to shoot a certain shot to win the thing. But in the actual sequence of what happened, you'd already shot. And Oh, yeah, I was, I was done shooting and had to lunch before the Korean finished his three arrows, so... Yeah, I mean, I think my first arrow was in the air when my last one left the bow. I shot him so fast. Because at 90 meters, it takes a while. Yeah. But, yeah, it. so, yes, I think if you can shoot an arrow when you need to shoot it with confidence, regardless of it's head-to-head and you only have 20 seconds, I think that can put more pressure on a guy because as soon as your clock starts, you pull up, you shoot, it's in the middle, now you're staring at him going, okay. Now, I think it's important to note that that is not really a deviation from how you normally shot anyway. I mean, your practice shots were pretty quick, too. Oh, I always shot that way. Right. And to another point that Brady had made when I was interviewing him for the Japanese magazine, um, you know, that excerpt that we just pulled, he made the same comment. Every shot's the same, regardless of whether it's a practice shot or a blank bail shot or, you know, a shot at the Olympic Games. And that's what you're trying to do. Well, that's I what mean, he said, too. Yes, that's what your mindset should be. Now, you should also understand that it's never going to feel the same in a tournament as it does in practice. Right, and he admitted that, but but the principle is there. Yeah, absolutely, but... The goal. Yes, but I watch too many people in a tournament because you are hypercritical in a tournament, and you do have some adrenaline going, and you do got the nerves going... Or the excitement, which I prefer to think of it as excitement. But it doesn't feel the same. I used to have arguments with Dick all the time that my release was flying away from my face and it was horrible. But my arrows were still going in the middle. And he'd be like, don't worry about it. They're going in the middle. I'm like, yeah, but it's, he goes, it, A, it's not doing that. You just think it is. B, they're going in the middle. Just keep shooting them that way. The heightened adrenaline creates a different feeling and a different reaction. As a result, you think you're doing things that maybe externally don't really look different. Correct. When you got adrenaline going, your eyesight's better, your reaction time's faster. So in a tournament, in practice, you know, your sight sits there and it lazily floats around and you execute the shot and it's no big deal. And if it's a 10, great. And if it's a nine, whatever. And if it's an eight, okay, I'll shoot a better one next time. But in a tournament, 
you see that site and it looks like it's moving all over the place. It's not moving anymore in a tournament. You just think it is because you're, everything's more heightened. Your awareness is more heightened. Forget it. Just execute the shot. And to Brady's point, your body changes all the time. So some days I'd get up and my release was a little softer than other days. I'd adjust my sight and I'd shoot with that soft release and they kept going in the middle and I won tournaments. And then other days it was crisp and it was clean and I loved it and I was having fun and I won those tournaments too. So you don't try to change it. You have to go with it. You have to be an artist and to understand that you're never going to feel exactly the same every day. And you're definitely not going to feel the same as in a, from a practice to in a tournament. You're always trying to shoot that same shot. But you can't beat yourself up because it's not the same. If it's consistent, you will shoot groups. If you shoot groups, you can adjust your sight to make them go in the middle. And going back to your point earlier, it's accepting the fact that things are going to feel different. It's accepting the pressure and focusing as a result. Focus, rhythm, timing. And ultimately... You have to like being under pressure and showing off. The top archers love to show off. They might not admit it, but they love standing there having people watch them and go, watch me now, I'm going to shoot another 10. That has to be your mindset. And it's hilarious because people never, rarely remember the tournaments you don't win. They remember the tournaments you win. So... If that's all they're going to remember, it doesn't matter how many times you fail. If you win the right tournaments, you will be a legend. You could lose every tournament your entire career, and you go win the Olympic Games or World Championship, you're a legend. I mean, it's that simple. So don't get wrapped around the axle about that. And one of the hardest things for me was to separate who I was from what I did. And by that I mean... There was a point where I started shooting good and started winning some stuff, and I thought, well, if I don't win a tournament, then people are going to think less of me, or they're going to think differently about me. And what I learned was the people that like me are going to like me whether I win or lose. The people that hate me are going to hate me whether I win or lose. The people that don't know me have to make up their own mind about whether they like me or hate me. And there's nothing I can do about that, and nothing I do on that field is going to change who I ultimately am to those people. And one of the best things I ever heard was I was at a, I think we were at the Olympic Games, and we were doing a, a interview, a bunch of different athletes. It was myself, and uh, Greg Luganis was there, and I think Carl Lewis was there, and some gold medalists. It was a 92, so from other games. And if you don't know who Greg Luganis is, kids, look him up. He was a diver, the best that was probably ever out there. He won the three-meter springboard and the 10-meter platform, in 88 and 92, I believe. Um, anyway, reporter asked him at this thing, so Greg, what's the last thing that goes through your mind before you hurl yourself off a 10-meter high platform at a swimming pool that looks like a postage stamp, doing three full flips with three full twists, trying to hit the water perfectly to win the gold medal? What's the last thing that goes through your mind? And Lugana said, no matter what happens, my mom will always love me. And I thought, there you have it. That's, I mean, that's it. Nothing you do is going to change who you are while you're at a tournament. For those of you who 
don't understand what you just heard and what it means, go back five minutes and listen again to this last portion. Because I can attest personally that that is a piece of advice I got from Jay Bars more than 25 years ago. And it really changed my archery career. And if you take it to heart and understand what it means, it'll help change yours too. And it's easy to say, but it's hard to do. I struggled with it because it's embarrassing not to shoot good. And that's, you know, I used to get really mad. I could pull a John McEnroe, go look him up too. He's a tennis player, um, you know, with the best of them. But ultimately, it was because I was embarrassed because I was shooting bad, and I knew in my own mind I could shoot better than that. But you can't let that get to you. And, again, it's easy to say. It's hard to do. But work on it. It will make your life much easier. That's a piece of gold from the Olympic gold medalist, Jay Bars. I want to thank you for joining us on the Easton Podcast tonight, Jay. Absolutely. And understand, ladies and gentlemen, everything I said is my opinion. I'm not saying I'm right or wrong. It's just my opinion. It's how I did it. It's what worked for me. 